This is Christ, Culture, and Coffee, a podcast designed to help equip Christians to be able to defend their faith and be confident in their faith. Hey everyone, what's going on? Welcome to Christ Culture and Coffee. I'm your host, Robbie Lashua, and uh, Tyler is actually not here today. He had some other things that came up that he had to attend to, and so I am solo today. Uh, but this is going to be a cool show. We're kind of in a series on uh, progressive Christianity. Last week we talked with Dan Kimball about his book on how not to read the Bible, um, and, and just hearing his experience of being in the emerging church, which then was morphed in, by some guys into the emergent church, which is now uh, kind of progressive Christianity's theology. And so it was really fascinating talking to him about that, but then also talking to him about how important it is that we do hold to Scripture as God's Word, and we do study it well to know what it's saying, because it was written uh, for us, but it wasn't written to us. And so if you haven't listened to that episode, I encourage you to go back, check that out from last week. And then the week prior to it, we actually uh, talked about uh, dangers of progressive Christianity. And today I wanted to kind of talk more about that specifically in regards to story and to postmodern relativism and how we can understand the worldview behind what's driving this progressive Christianity to help our friends and family not fall into this trap, but also to help people around us not live in a relativistic world. Now, before we get to that, one of the things we love to do on the show, if, if you're new to the show, we always start with a coffee tip. That's the coffee portion of it. I've got my coffee mug right here. And uh, here is the coffee tip. Now, this is a really strange one. Usually we talk about different types of beans or drinks you can make or things you can put in your coffee. Here is a fascinating coffee tip for you. And if you are traveling now that COVID is kind of lifting, if you're ready to get out there and go on a vacation, uh, I would highly recommend checking this resort out in Japan. Uh, this place is called the Hakone Kowakin Unison Spa and Resort. Now, the thing about this place is they have all of these hot spring baths, and they've, they've kind of changed some of these hot spring baths into very interesting experiences. There's one where you can actually sit in, like, Japanese sake. There's one where you can sit in wine. Uh, they have one that has little fish in it that'll eat the dead skin off of your feet. But one of the pools they have is a coffee hot spring bath. That's right, a coffee hot springed bath. In this hot spring uh, pool, they drip coarse coffee that they've brewed at really low temperatures from the same water that the hot spring is comprised of. Uh, they say that the aroma of the smell of coffee and being in it reduces fatigue, so it kind of wakes you up, and they, they claim that it also beautifies your skin. So they add coffee, actually, to this bath throughout the day. Their website says at 9.30, at 12.30 p.m., 3.30 p.m., they're in there adding more coffee to it. And you can be in the pool while they're dumping coffee into it or dumping coffee onto you. And so if you've never experienced, like I haven't, taking a bath in a hot spring full of coffee, this might be something to go and check out. 
Now, they do say that you shouldn't drink it, <laughs> which I think goes without saying, but they say, hey, don't drink the coffee hot spring water. So make sure before you go, you pick up a really good cup of coffee, you head over to the hot spring, and you enjoy yourself a coffee bath. I think that would be an interesting uh, experience to check out. Again, that's in Japan, and you can go to that spa, and it really wasn't that expensive, actually, pretty affordable. So that is your coffee tip for today. Take a bath in coffee in Japan. All right, let's move on to the meat of the the podcast today, uh, just talking about uh, relativism. So we hit on this a couple weeks ago when we were talking about Brian McLaren's book, A New Kind of Christianity. Uh, But one of the things that's important to notice about uh, the progressive church or the emergent church movement is that they are trying to update Christianity to a postmodern view. And and some do it more than others, but that is kind of the goal is we need to update Christianity to fit within a postmodern culture, a relativistic culture. And now relativism is basically, you know, anybody can make up their own truth, and what I believe is just as valid as what you believe, uh, and, and your truth is true for you, my truth is true for me. This has been happening in our culture for the last 20 years. It's very popular. We actually see it, uh, the seeds of it happening through architecture and then through art because of this philosophy of postmodernism. And now we're in full-fledged relativism where you can create your own truth. And so that is the real question that we need to be asking is, who creates reality? Who creates truth. Is it us as human beings or is it God who's the creator of reality, aka the creator of absolute truth? So when it comes down to where we're living, you know, I've talked with a lot of people lately who are concerned and freaked out about where culture's going. And I just, I do want to encourage you that this is nothing new, right? Uh, Solomon tells us in Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. These types of things and movements and thoughts have been in the past. It's not novel to our time. It's just different for us because this isn't the culture that we've lived in for the past hundred years in Western civilization in America. So be encouraged. It's not new. And I actually want to show you how it's not new. If if you go all the way back to the book of Judges, right? So context, uh, God creates everything. He uh, then, uh, the flood happens, right? Abraham, God makes a promise to Abraham about his descendants. And then Joseph, uh, Abraham's great-grandson, gets uh, taken into Egypt, sold into slavery by his brothers. He becomes second in command of the whole nation, uh, miraculously. And then the whole family of Abraham's descendants move into Egypt. And for 400 years, they're there, and they're multiplying, and they're becoming a nation, just like God promised that they would. Moses comes in. uh, God has him liberate them and take them out of Egypt. Then they're supposed to go take over the promised land, which was a promise to Abraham. That generation freaks out and doesn't do it. So God says, listen, you're not going to be able to enter the land. Everyone 20 and older is not going to make it. So they wander for 40 years in the desert, for all those people to die off, and then Joshua and Caleb lead the Israelites into the promised land. After the conquest of Joshua is the time of the judges. It's a period of around 300 years before the monarchy starts with King Saul. 
So during the time of the judges, there's this theme that we see throughout the book. Uh, the Israelites follow the Lord, then they turn away to idols, then they're oppressed, and then they say, we need help, please help us. God raises up a judge, the judge comes, liberates them, and then they do the same thing. They turn to idols, they, they become oppressed, they say, we need help, God raises up a judge. It's this cycle of the book of Judges. But one of the things that's really interesting about it is over and over and over again, this theme is, is said in the book of Judges. I wanted to read to you from Judges 17, uh, verse 6. It says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. And that is a theme of Judges. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's the world we're living in today. Everybody has a valid opinion and everybody's beliefs are just as true as everybody else's and you can decide what your future is. You can decide what your reality is. You can decide what your morality is and everyone does what's right, not in God's eyes, not based on objective truth, but based on their own perceptions. Everyone does what is right in their own eyes. That's the world we're living in. But again, it's nothing new, and we have got to understand this. This is nothing new. It's been around before. It's been amongst God's people before. But we have to stand on truth. We have to stand on objective truth of Scripture. So why does this happen? Well, there's a few reasons. One of them is that human beings love to be the creators of their own reality, right? Which is short for saying we like playing God. We like to be our own gods. We like to be in charge. We like to write the rules because rules I make up can follow any desire that I have, any will that I have. Not his will be done, my will be done. And that's one of the reasons people like to do this. Now, the truth of it is it's such a backwards idea because if any of us takes a little bit of time to contemplate what we are, we realize we didn't make everything out there, right? Uh, if I just think about it, I came onto the scene in 1983, and uh, I didn't make the ocean. It was already there. And I didn't make the beaches. They were already there. And I didn't make the mountains. They were already there. And if I'm honest with myself, I can't be the creator of what's out there. But so many people start to think that they can be the creators of their morality, or of their religiosity or their spirituality that they can create. Well, I think this is how it is. Now, the goal shouldn't be to create our own realities. The goal should be to figure out what is real and to live in accordance with what's real or what's true. That's what we need to be doing. Truth and reality, that's, that's the same thing. That's what we mean. Truth is what's real. And we shouldn't be able to create our own ideas of reality, but to conform ourselves to what is really true. Now, this is a backwards idea because none of us have created everything. We all know that. And the, and the other side of it is all of us lack uh, discernment at times. All of us lack knowledge. Like, I don't have infinite knowledge. Nobody has infinite knowledge. I don't have infinite power, right? No human being has infinite power. Um, so if we're honest with ourselves about our knowledge and our power we're found to be lacking. In addition to that, we're also limited because of the problem of sin. Um, there is a problem within human beings. And to be honest with you, every religion that mankind has come up with acknowledges 
I've got a problem. <laughs> There's something wrong that needs fixing. There's something wrong that needs liberating or salvation. And so we recognize there's this issue with us and there's this evil that we provoke that resides within us that we uh, uh, continue to act out. And, and in Christianity, that's what sin is, right? We're infected with this problem and we need help from it. So we lack in power, we lack in knowledge, plus we're bent towards evil. Why is it that I should trust my own opinions, my own desires, or the light within, right, uh, when it comes to really important issues of reality? It's kind of weird. Like, I know I've been mistaken about things in the past. I know that. I've experienced thinking I was correct and then realizing I was way off base, so how is it that it's a good idea to trust my own thoughts, my own desires, my own intention? You know, sometimes people will say, well, that's just, that's just my truth, right? That's my truth. That's for me. No, 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 no. It's reality or it's, it's preference, right? I love Greg Kokel from Standard Reason. He always talks about that. He says how, you know, is, is truth a ice cream preference flavor? Like you like Rocky Road. I like cookies and cream. There's no right or wrong there. It's just preference. Is that what morality or absolute truth is? Or is it more like insulin to a diabetic where they have to have the specific thing because it correlates with the disease that they have? Are we living in a world where truth is ice cream or is it insulin? Which one is it? And as Christians, we would say it's insulin. There's reality out there. It's true. So how is it that I can think I create my own ideas of reality that makes them valid? Now, I can be mistaken about what's true, but I don't know why people are starting to believe this idea that I create my own reality. It doesn't make a lot of sense. And to follow what's within if I'm bent towards evil, probably isn't a great idea. It seems like a much better idea to me that we trust a message that comes from someone who isn't lacking in knowledge and isn't lacking in power and isn't bent towards evil. That would be great, right? And that's not me. I'm bent towards evil. I'm lacking in knowledge and power. But what if there was someone who wasn't? In fact, that's what Christianity teaches, that there is somebody who isn't bent towards evil, who isn't lacking in power, and who isn't lacking in knowledge. And this person is God. He is outside of the situation that we find ourselves in. He's the creator of all things. He's the maker of reality. And as such, he can inform us to how things really are. He can inform us as to what's true or what reality actually is. God is in the best position to speak to us what is real. And that's why God's word is kind of a big deal because he broke into our situation and communicated to us what is true, how he created things to be, what is actually real. And more importantly, I mean, not more importantly, but in addition to that, he also communicated how we operate within that. Now, it seems to me that taking God's opinion on things is probably a smarter idea than creating my own ideas because I'm broken and I'm lacking in power and I'm lacking in knowledge and I'm bent towards evil. But why has this become such an appealing worldview to so many people and honestly seeping into the church in this progressive Christianity guise? 
Why is it appealing? I think there's a few reasons why this relativistic idea is appealing. One of them is because you don't have to commit to anything. Uh, it seems like, not seems, it's true that, that the younger generations are actually terrible at commitment. They don't commit to marriage young. They don't commit to raising a family young. Um, nobody's really committed to their jobs. There's this lack of commitment that has come about in our society because relativism is appealing in that way. Well, I might change. Things might be different. I might do this. Lack of responsibility is also a huge problem for my generation and younger generations. But this belief that you don't have to commit to anything appeals to people. People are afraid of being wrong. It's just the truth. People are afraid of being wrong. You hear that all the time. Like, I don't want to be on the wrong side of history, right? I want to make sure I know what I'm doing. I want to make... So people don't want to commit sometimes because if you commit, then you're putting your flag down somewhere and saying, this is where I stand, which opens you up to the possibility of being wrong. So by leaving truth open, by, by leaving religious ideas open or morality open... The relativist never has to come across as close-minded or offensive. Nobody can tell them that's wrong because they don't stand for anything. They, in fact, say, well, you do what you want to do. I'll do what I want to do. It's a very non-combative worldview. But you can't perpetually stand for nothing. At a certain point, you have to come down on some type of belief. The problem with this ideology is that it isn't livable. It isn't livable. And here's how. Relativists believe that at least one truth for everybody for all time in all places exists. And their belief is that all truths are valid. Now think about this. They say, listen, you can't tell anybody they're wrong. You can't believe you're the only right way because all truths are valid. In saying that, they're contradicting themselves because they're arguing against the belief that only um, one truth is real truth. If I say, listen, I believe that Christianity is the only way to God, the relativist says, I can't believe you're so close-minded because all paths lead, all paths have truth, everybody's opinion is valid. And in saying that, they're saying that my opinion isn't valid. Do you see the problem? The idea that all truths are truth, all beliefs have validity and are true, is in fact in and of itself an objective truth that they're appealing to. They're saying that that rule is binding for everybody to believe. And if you don't believe that one big rule, then you're wrong. Wait a second. I thought everybody's beliefs are valid, so my exclusive beliefs of Christianity should be valid according to you. But for some reason, it's not. And the reason is because I'm disagreeing with their objective truth claim. So it comes across as, hey, we're not committing, we're not saying anything here, but they are. They're making a truth claim that everyone should believe that everybody's views are equally valid. Now, I'm not saying that people can't have their own opinions. Of course we can. Everybody can have their own opinion, right? But our opinions should be based on good evidence and reasoning. And it's not wrong to question other people's opinion. It's wrong to treat people bad. But it's not wrong to question people's opinion. Another reason why relativism is so appealing is because it's perceived as non-judgmental. 
Now, since anyone can believe anything and be correct in their belief, there's no reason to have good judgment because you don't need to judge anything. It's basically up to your whim or what you feel or where you were born or what your culture says. Nothing needs to be assessed in a thorough manner. And this really appeals to people because you never have to correct anybody, right? Nobody ever says anything wrong in this worldview, right? You might not like it, but it isn't wrong. Therefore, it's not something you have to correct or you have to say, hey, hold on a second here. I don't know about that. I think this. I think you're wrong. You never have to judge other people. Now, the favorite verse of the relativists, right, and we hear this all the time, is, is Matthew 7.1. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. Jesus said this, right, and people always say that. Don't you know what Jesus said about judging other people? He said, do not judge so that you will not be judged. He did say that. And you need to look at the context of that passage in the Sermon on the Mount for what he's saying. He's talking about make sure your life's okay, make sure you're living well before you start nitpicking other people. But in John 7.24, Jesus says these words, Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Jesus literally tells us we are supposed to evaluate other people not on their appearance, but on righteous judgment. Behaviors and truth claims need to be judged with righteous judgment, with just judgment. This, this lie that, that to disagree with someone is to hate them is completely unbiblical and completely untrue. We can disagree with people and love them at the same time. And in fact, Jesus taught this idea Jesus says in Matthew 5.44, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, an enemy is someone who pers or, or, or someone who persecutes you is in fact someone you strongly disagree with about something, right? And they strongly disagree with you about something. There's some reason they're an enemy or someone who's persecuting you. So disagreement is definitely there. And yet Jesus believes that we can and that we should love those who are our enemies or who are persecuting us, which means you can love people that you have extreme disagreement with. We don't need to live in this, oh, I don't want to judge anybody. No, we should make righteous judgments. We should make judgments that assess reality. But how are we to know that? Well, I don't want to look in here because I'm bent toward evil and my knowledge is lacking and my power is lacking. I need to look to someone who's better than that, someone outside of the situation who can inform me to what's going on. And that's what Christians have with God. He's informing us as to what's really happening because in here it'd be very difficult for us to figure it out. So we're supposed to judge according to righteous judgments, which are found in God's word and in what he's communicated to us about himself. Another reason that relativism is very appealing to people is because it's perceived to be the most loving option. Now, this is fascinating to me. If you just Google search uh, progressive churches in America, right, uh, you'll find a list of people who describe themselves as a progressive Christian church. And if you look on all of their websites, they will have a statement or a tab you can click about uh, LGBTQ 
issues. And they all are affirming of that and saying that we, we should love these people, meaning accept the behavior. And we know what the Bible says, but we think we know a little bit better now. And we don't have to stand on those morals. We create our own morals as a culture or as a society or as a church. All of them think that this is a loving option, but it isn't judging with a righteous judgment, and it isn't depending on someone outside of your circumstance who has really good knowledge, power, and isn't bent towards evil. So love is cast in this way of accepting anybody's behavior or anything that that they think as a belief or a view. Now, this actually isn't loving according to what the Bible says. First uh, Corinthians 13:6 says, "Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but it rejoices in the truth." Did you catch that? Truth is an important aspect of love. And if everybody's opinion about their morality or about their religion is different from one another, and that's all valid, how can we assess what is unrighteous? How can we make just righteous judgments and know that's unrighteous? And to love isn't to rejoice in the unrighteousness of others or of myself, but love is to rejoice in what's real, what's true. We have to be able to make judgments on that. Well, how do we do that? God tells us how, and his morality is how we should do it, and his objective truth and how he created things to be is what we should submit to instead of trying to create our own reality. This isn't a loving option because truth is an important aspect of love. Now, it's not loving at all to allow people to destroy themselves, which is in fact what believing lies do to human beings. Believing lies destroy us. They destroy us in many ways, mentally, relationally, spiritually, physically. Believing truth, Jesus said, sets us free. The truth will set you free. But believing lies enslaves and kills us. Jesus' brother wrote this down in James uh, chapter 1, verse 13 through 15. He said, Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Sin destroys us, and we we have these desires. We believe the lie that we need to indulge the desires that we have, which leads us to evil and to sin. And then sin, when it grows, it brings death. It enslaves us and entraps us and it kills us. Now, we don't want to love people and love that they're doing unrighteous acts or unrighteous things or have unrighteous beliefs. We need to love people because love uh, rejoices in the truth. That's the idea here. So relativism does not fit in with a biblical worldview. It doesn't at all. What you have to do is you have to take the authority of God and the authority of the message he wrote us, and you have to say, actually, I'm an authority over that. It isn't an authority over me. 
But again, I just think it's so unwise to do that because if we're honest with ourselves, we're really flawed. How can we make sense of, how can we write our own moral code or our own reality? How can we even think that we can do that? It doesn't make a lot of sense to me because I know myself. I need help with that. And that's the help that God offers through his word. So the correct response is to submit under God and under the word and message he's written to us, even when it's hard to do, even when it goes against our desires, because it's real, because it's true. We need to be people who live based on what's real, not based on creating our own reality. Sin destroys us, but love entails speaking the truth, even if it's offensive to the person that you're speaking truth to. Now, we don't have to be offensive in how we talk about truth, but sometimes truth is offensive and truth isn't invited. And we still need to love people enough to tell them what's real because we can't rejoice in unrighteousness. We rejoice in what's real. We rejoice in the truth. This is important for us as Christians. I can't, I can't do this with my kids. I don't live out relativism with my sons and daughters, right? <clears throat> if I just let them do whatever their truth was, they'd be dead by now because they'd be running in the street. They'd be eating too much junk. They'd never go to bed. They'd watch TV all day. They wouldn't be healthy at all because they didn't have any self-control. It's crazy because the Bible talks about self-control being a fruit of the Spirit, right? It's a good thing. It's a virtue, but if everybody can make up their own rule, somebody can say, I don't think self-control is a good virtue at all. And am I supposed to take that view as, as equally valid with my view that self-control is a virtue? Well, of course not. They can't both be true at the same time, right? Because they're contradicting one another. So this idea that, ah, we just let everybody have their own truth is not really loving because if people have believed lies, it harms them and it can kill them. And that's not what Scripture is about. Scripture is about truth-setting people free and loving people and loving life because we worship a God of life. So I think that relativism can be appealing for a lot of reasons, but if you just think a layer deeper about what they're saying, about not judging, about being loving, about um, not committing, all of those things aren't actually going on when you begin to dig deeper into what love is and into what judgment is, and especially when you look at what Scripture says. Now, one of the things that's huge in uh, the progressive Christian church, or it was even huge in the emergent church stuff, is this idea of a meta-narrative. You'll hear this word all the time, meta-narrative. What is the overarching story of reality, right? What is it? Who, who gets to decide what the big story is? Well, it depends on what your worldview is, right? In Christianity, we believe that there's a God who created everything from nothing, and he made it all good because he can't make evil. And then we were tempted by a fallen angel who was masquerading as a serpent, and we fell into sin, infecting all of humanity, but God sent a rescue mission through his son to come and die on our behalf to rescue us. And if we believe in him, we can be rescued and become fully human again. That's our big story. Well, the Hindu story is different than that. And the Islamic story is different than that. So meta-narrative, right? Meta-narrative. Who gets to say what the big story is? And in postmodern philosophy, one of the beliefs is that the meta-narrative does not exist. They think that there is not one story that's overarching human history that makes sense of all reality. 
Now, the crazy part about that statement is that by saying that, you're making that the meta narrative, right? Do you see how that works? By saying there are no meta narratives, you're making that the big story that everybody's supposed to live underneath. You can't do that if there aren't any meta narratives. That doesn't make sense. And this is how relativism, postmodern philosophy, uh, contradicts itself. But they believe anyone who's holding on to their meta narrative as the ultimate truth that explains all stories, explains all peoples, explains everything, that if you believe that yours is the right one, you're living under a delusion. Think about that. You're living under a delusion. So they would say the Muslims who think that's completely true, nope, wrong. The Christians who think Christianity is exclusively true, nope, wrong. Because there is no one truth. There is no one big story. Now, the hard part with this is, well, then how do we check our thoughts with reality, right? Like, how, how can we know that there is no big story? They're claiming to know that there isn't a meta narrative. Well, how do they know that? How do they know that? And, and the postmodern philosophy kind of teaches that we can't really know what's out there. We can't really know what's true because truth is kind of uh, derived out of human language, and stories we tell and powerful stories win the day and can move cultures to do things. Uh, but we can't get out there to know what's really real. And it's interesting because I would somewhat agree with that, which is why we needed what's out there to reach down here to tell us what's real. And that's what we have with God's word. We have ultimate reality, God himself telling us and informing us about the real world. So the postmodern belief that we can't figure it out on our own is kind of true. We need help with that. But they don't believe that there's a God out there. They assume kind of an atheistic worldview. Now, I want to make sure you understand, I'm not saying that progressive Christians believe that necessarily, but progressive Christian doctrine has stemmed from postmodern thought, and this is postmodern thought. They believe that no one's story or truth is better than anyone else's and that we all, again, have our own truths or our own realities, our own stories. I want to I wanna explain this to you. I, I pulled this off of a website. The website's BethelBeaverton.org. Uh, they're a progressive Christian church that is called Bethel Congregational United Church of Christ. <clears throat> and this is in their um, uh, webpage under Progressive Christianity and what it is. And they say this, the Christian faith is our way of being faithful to God, but it is not the only way. Christianity is the truth for us, but it is not the only truth. Then they explain it like this. This principle stems from the reality of the 21st century. We share our lives with people who are Muslim, Jewish, Hindu, Buddhists. We experience these people as loving and caring by following their religious traditions. To deny that is to deny that God can only draw people with him one way. That simply isn't borne out in our experience. The power of the Christian faith to transform lives does not require it to be exclusively true. Exclusivity is born out of fear. The fear that there is one train to God and if you aren't on the right train, you'll go to hell. We believe there are many trains and God welcomes them all, end quote. 
Okay, so do you see what they're saying? That Christianity is true for us, but it's not the only truth, and people can make their way to God by many different religions and many different ways. And I wanted to point that out to you because this really reinforces the postmodern thought that's driving the doctrine and, and the heresy of the progressive Christian church. <clears throat> this idea that there is no right one way. Now, the crazy thing about that is, in saying that, they're claiming that the right one way is that there are no right one ways. Do you see that? That the right train to be on is all the trains that you could be on. It's, it's, it's a, it's a self-contradicting statement. They're making a truth claim that's supposed to be binding for all people, but what they're saying is no truth claims are binding for all people, including yours, including this idea that all these trains lead. Why do I have to believe that? Because if you are being honest with yourself, you should take my opinions just as valid as yours because mine's a train that I think leads. And if all lead, then mine leads and mine's an exclusive train. It doesn't work. Relativism contradicts itself. <clears throat> but I wanted you to see how they are pulling in this postmodern thought that there is no meta narrative over everything, that everybody has their own, and that they're all equally valid, and they're all equally real, and they're all equally true. Now, this gets tougher when we start to, to, to ask ourselves, okay, well, how do we know that? How do we know that all paths lead, right? It's a nice sentiment, but where do we learn that from? And it's really interesting if you read what they said. <clears throat> they said that this principle stems from the reality of the 21st century. So they're saying we as a culture or we as a church or we in our experience have come to the place where we realize this which again reinforces postmodern thought, that whoever tells a strong story creates what's real, creates what's true, and that's what they're doing. They're trying to create this story. So when it gets into knowing right and wrong, right, um, all narratives lead, they say. All narratives make it. All narratives are the same. All are equally valid. But the key is when stories are believed, the teller of the story gains power over others. And that's what they're doing. They're, they're spinning a story to tell people how they should live their lives, but they're also saying, but our story isn't the only real story. There's many real stories. Okay. In, in Brian McLaren's book, which we talked about a few weeks ago, we talked about how he has as his first of 10 questions, the narrative question, where he says that the meta narrative of scripture is not what most Christians throughout the last 2000 years have believed. Brian McLaren in the book claimed that the idea of Eden, fall, condemnation, salvation, heaven, and hell is not what the Bible's talking about, and it's the wrong, he uses the word, meta-narrative. He says that that idea is based on Greek and Roman philosophy, and we should abandon that as Christians, and he claims to know what the real narrative is. And the real biblical narrative, according to Brian McLaren, is that God liberated the Israelites from Babylon and Egypt, and his overarching purpose is to liberate humanity. To liberate humanity. Now, the, the question I've asked on this is, why should I trust the authority of Brian McLaren instead of the authority of what Scripture says? Why, why should I trust, trust Brian McLaren instead of other pastors who say the opposite? 
Think about it. If all views are equally valid and there is no meta narrative, why choose this one over this one? The fact that Brian McLaren writes books betrays his his idea that he thinks he's right about something. If you if you didn't think you had something to say, if you didn't think you were correct about something, if you weren't trying to persuade people in a direction, there's no need to write books or to speak or to share or to have podcasts. And yet he does. Why? Because he is trying to persuade people to his line of thinking. He's telling a story to try to move and, and motivate and change a culture and change people to believe his meta-narrative. But why is his any more valid than anyone else's? According to their worldview, it's not. According to their worldview, all are. So I don't need to believe what they're saying according to their own worldview. They go on and they question the authority of scripture, which we talked about, right? How should we read scripture? And they often talk about how it's a, a library of texts of how people related to God, not how God related to people. Uh, it's really fascinating. In, in his book, he even talks about <clears throat> um, how the God that's described in Job might not be the real God, but what if he's just a character, a fictitious character of the author's imagination and how the author relates to God? but he's not the actual God. And so he's, he's making these to be books where we can feel inspired from, but they aren't, thus saith the Lord, words of God. And, and, and it's interesting because in saying that, he's putting himself in authority over Scripture, and I don't think we should do that because, like I said before, we lack power, we lack knowledge, and we lack a, a, a righteous uh, bent in our life. We're bent towards evil. So why would I trust a Brian McLaren versus a God who's perfect and holy and righteous and all-knowing and all-powerful? That seems like a better person to trust than to trust a mere man. So <clears throat> uh, in, in his book, he, he again, he, he, he questions the authority of the big story, and then he questions the authority of all scripture. And in these progressive churches, you'll see that they don't hold God's word up high at all, like we talked about last week with Dan Kimball. They they make themselves to be the authorities over scripture. They do what the people in the book of Judges were doing. They did what was right in their own eyes instead of doing what was right in God's eyes through his communicated truth. So again, my big question for the progressive Christian relativist is why should I believe your meta-narrative and why do you think that I'm wrong? It's fascinating if you go on a lot of these churches' websites, they will like degrade my view of uh, classical or historical Christianity. Wait a second, I thought all views were equally valid, but for some reason they're trying to say mine's wrong. You can't say mine's wrong if all paths lead. If all truths are valid truths, then mine's valid too, and you can't be upset about that. But for some reason they are, and it's because you can't live in a world where you actually believe all ideas are valid. You have to make, you, you see contradictions all of the time, and you have to make sense of that. So they see that their views and our views contradict one another, and they don't want to abandon their views, so they have to say ours are wrong. Well, that doesn't jive with their worldview. In fact, it jives with my worldview because my worldview is exclusive. My worldview says there is one truth for all people in all places at all times, in all cultures, in all stories, 
and that we don't create our own reality, we submit to reality. So what they do when they argue against or degrade the classical Christian view is they betray the fact that they really don't believe in the relativistic ideology they say that they hold to. They actually believe in an exclusive reality, which is what I'm saying and they're upset about. This doesn't make sense. It's not a, a livable worldview, and it's because we actually live in a world where there are exclusive truths. There are tons of exclusive truths around us all the time, and we live according to them all the time. I have to put gas in my car. I can't put sugar water in there. It won't work. I can't put vinegar in it. It won't work. I have to put gasoline in my car to work. There are a lot of things like that that we submit to all the time. But when it comes to sexuality or religion, it seems that people want to make up their own rules and do what's right in their eyes instead of through what God has said. So it seems that the following uh, that following the postmodern view, um, that that idea that uh, truth is what we get from our communities and we can create it and we can cultivate it and we can tell stories and we can get strength. Why should I trust Brian McLaren's view? Why should I trust progressive Christian pastors' view? <clears throat> and this is, I think, important for all of us because you might be sitting there going, why should I trust your view? To be honest with you, you shouldn't trust my view just because I'm talking, just because I'm saying something. You shouldn't trust your pastor's view just because they're saying something. We need some type of person who's a really credible source. And this is what's amazing about Christianity is there is a man who lived 2,000 years ago who claimed to be more than a man. He claims to be the God who created all things. And he didn't just claim it, and he didn't just rave about it like a crazy human being. He actually proved it through doing miracle after miracle after miracle, the biggest one being that he predicted he would die and come back to life three days later, and then he actually did. And he convinced his friends of it, he convinced his enemies of it, and he convinced his family that this fact did happen, and they were all willing to die for the belief that he rose from the dead. That seems like a really valid person to trust on issues of reality. Not me, not Brian McLaren. Jesus Christ seems to be an extremely credible voice to what's real and true, especially when it comes to what's happening after our death. Nobody else has done anything like what Jesus Christ did in the past. Buddha didn't claim to come back from the dead. Muhammad didn't claim to come back from the dead. Joseph Smith didn't claim to come back from the dead. On and on and on. If Christ really rose from the dead, that's the guy we should probably listen to. And the New Testament is uh, writings of the followers of Jesus about him, about what he taught, about what he said, and about the mission that he set them on. That seems like a much more credible source than a society who comes along and tells a story and gains people's you know, allegiance devoid of what's real. I, I don't want to follow a story. I want to follow what's real and what's true. And if the meta narrative is that all stories are valid, then no stories are valid. If everybody's first place, nobody's first place. But if there is one meta-narrative that says, no, this is exclusively true for all people, for all time, for all places, that's the one we should follow. And I think looking to what Jesus said and taught makes the most sense because he's the only person throughout all history that I think validated that they were someone worth reckoning with and listening to.
So we need to understand that we as people do not create reality. We don't create truth. We discover it. The idea that communities can create their own truth is not true. Nazi Germany didn't create their own truth. They believed a lie and they destroyed a lot of people's lives because they believed a lie. And it's not that we just didn't prefer what they were doing. What they were doing was heinously evil. We need to discover what's real and what's true. And the virtues and principles that are real in this world should inform how we live our lives and what we believe. And that's why scripture is so important, because this is God's communication to mankind about what's going on and about how we fit into it and about what he's going to do in the future. And that's why this isn't a book that I sit in judgment over. It's a book that sits in judgment over me. And informs me to my inadequacies. And it cuts to my heart. I love how it talks about how that scripture is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts through soul and spirit, through bone and marrow. It can cut us deep and reveal what's actually going on to us. And it's good for doctrine and for reproof and for instruction and for training in righteousness. Scripture is that. Why? Because as Paul said, it's all God-breathed. It's all God-breathed. It's his message to us. It's not our ideas about him. And this idea about progressive Christianity and the steam that it's gaining, I think when people begin to wake up to how relativism self-contradicts, that they can't remain in it. But our job is to love people and to teach them truth, to love people and to tell them the truth. And you can do both at the same time. And so if you've got progressive Christian friends out there, if you have uh, relativistic, non-Christian friends, agnostic or atheist, we need to love them and we need to care about them and we need to talk to them about these things, about how their view that all views are right can't be true. It doesn't make sense. It self-contradicts. We need to encourage them to seek truth. We need to encourage them to commit to truth when you find it. To, to, to find what's real with the best evidence and the best reasoning and then to live according to that. Because living in accordance with reality is so much better than living in accordance with a fantasy world of your own making. We don't want to do that. We want to conform ourselves to what's actually true, not conform ourselves to the whims and ideologies and fads of this world. God's word is true. It's relevant because eternal things are always relevant, and we need to live in light of it and help our culture to understand that. Hey, I hope that this talk today has just been helpful to you. Just even seeing kind of like why the progressive church is believing these things, and it's because of the postmodern philosophy and relativistic thinking behind their beliefs. But next week, we're going to have a guest on, and we're going to talk a little bit more about how New Age ideas are actually getting infused into the evangelical church and progressive Christianity, and how we need to be on alert. To, to think through and, and see those. But hey, I, I appreciate you guys being here today. We always love uh, getting comments from you. I'm seeing people, even this last week, that are, that are talking about, hey, I'm starting to do the context thing in my Bible study, and I'm discovering a lot of things through, through doing that method that you guys taught us. Hey, thanks so much for uh, letting us know that this podcast is making an impact on you. It's always encouraging us to know that because our goal is to equip people to defend their faith, and equip people to be firmly rooted and stand and have confidence in their faith. And so thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much for watching on YouTube. We'll be back next week to talk more about progressive Christianity and talk about how the new age is infiltrating uh, evangelical Christianity. See you then.
If you enjoyed the show and felt that this podcast was beneficial to you, please be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Also, if you become a Level 4 supporter on our Patreon page, you can get yourself one of our stoneware, Christ culture, and coffee mugs, as well as a t-shirt and a sticker. We are available on all podcasting platforms, as well as YouTube, and we are also available on all social media platforms. Thanks so much for listening to Christ, Culture, and Coffee.